Well, I want us to do a little exercise <clears throat> as uh, we, we get started. Now, I know, I know that I say the word exercise and people start to panic. <laughs> it was exercise walking my way into the sanctuary this morning. I, that's not the kind of exercise. We're not going to get up and do calisthenics and we're not going to do any of that kind of craziness. We'll just calm down. But we're going we're gonna to do uh, an activity, a thing together, right there in the comfort of your seats. And uh, what, what I want you to do is, on the, on the count of three, we are all going to hold our breath for as long as we can. Okay? We're going to hold our breath. And, when, when, and we're going to be honest, this is not like when you're a kid in the pool, right? Like when you're a kid in the pool and you're having the breath holding contest, you're kind of watching and like getting up for an extra breath so you can get down before mom and dad see you. Like, don't lie, the Lord knows, right? There's a reason we're doing this. So roll with me for a second. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch my watch over here to the, the chrono, and I'm going to reset it. And we're going to all hold our breath, okay? So five, get ready. On, at one, we're taking our breath and going, right? So five, four, three, two, one. You guys are teenagers. The first two are out right there. When, raise your hand when you go out, when you have to take a breath. Yeah, it's amazing how many hands were like, yep. Anyone still holding their breath? Yeah? 34 seconds. You're doing well, all right? Got your whole bunch of hands. Don't anyone die, okay? <laughs> anyone still holding their breath? Oh, yeah. 47 seconds. Miss Betty's killing it right there. Okay, Miss Betty's out. Anyone still holding their breath? Oh, yeah, yeah. Got, got like four or five. Oh, you were there in a minute. Anyone still holding? Still holding? Oh, she's, okay, okay. The swimmer back there is like, man, this is nothing. <laughs> okay. Anyone still going? We got two. Okay, we're going to call it a tie right here. Very good, very good. I should have brought a prize. We're at like 124 right now. That's pretty impressive. I figured, I, and I, I think I was right, at about the 30-second mark, most of y'all were like, I am out. Like, and and, I, and I, there's, a reason, there's a reason that I, I wanted us to do that. Breathing is a necessity of life, right? We have to do it. We have to do it. And, and I'll be honest, there was a legitimate concern in my spirit as I thought about this and wrote this down this week about, am I going to actually kill someone this Sunday? Is this going to be the Sunday? Like, I, I hope not, but maybe, Right? But, but we, we have to breathe. Breathing, our, our, body, our body forces us to breathe when we don't. The, the world record for someone holding their breath was just recently broken in March of this year. And when a Croatian man held his breath, are you ready for this? 24 minutes and 34 seconds and some change. 24 minutes and 34 seconds. And you may say to yourself, that's impossible. Surely, surely that man cheated. You're right. He did. And this man holds the record for holding your breath after you've hyperventilated with oxygen for 30 minutes. 
So he, he breathes it in just pure oxygen for 30 minutes. And there's like rules for this for the Guinness Book of World Records. And you, you hyperventilate pure oxygen for 30 minutes and then you hold your breath. 24 minutes and 34 seconds. That's longer than the average length of a sitcom television show. Right? Can, can you imagine sitting and watching an episode of your favorite show and just casually holding your breath for the entirety of the episode? It, it, gives a whole, it's, it gives a whole new meaning to like waiting with bated breath for the end of the episode, right? 24 minutes, 34 seconds. The record drops substantially when you go to someone just holding their breath like we would. Right, like we were doing right here. That record of holding their breath without the assistance of oxygen is 11 minutes and 35 seconds. That means there, there's 10 more minutes beyond what we just did. 10 minutes and 10 seconds actually longer than what we just did with our longest holding of the breath in here. Now, again, granted, y'all didn't know we were comparing to a competition and we weren't going to go for two minutes sitting in here. But let's be honest, most of us weren't going to hit that two-minute mark. None of us were going to hit that two-minute mark. May, maybe, maybe Clayton and this wonderful young lady down here in the front, uh, we're going we're gonna to hit that minute. But most of us weren't going to do that. That's ridiculously impressive when we consider that the average person can only hold their breath for, in fact, 30 to 90 seconds. We, all of us in this room, are exceedingly average or below. <laughs> Sorry to tell you that this morning. Someone sitting in the sanctuary this morning or listening online going, I'm never going back to that church. He told me I'm below average. <laughs> and why is that? Why, why is it that we, well, the fact is that we are physically able. We could go longer. We, we don't actually have to breathe when we do, but our body is, is panicking. It's telling us, and everything in us, it doesn't take long, right, for the burn to start to set in. Your, your body, as you're holding your breath, is saying, you're not supposed to do this. You are designed to, there's perfectly good air all the way around you. Like, breathe some of that beautiful stuff in. And while you don't, your body's like, okay, I'm going to fight you. So your diaphragm begins contracting, which puts pressure on your lungs. And, and I'm guessing many of us in this room could feel it, right? The burning of, in your lungs. Some of you are saying, as soon as you said, we're going to hold our breath this morning, I'm feeling the burn right then. Right? We, we feel that burning in our lungs. Failure to breathe is increasingly uncomfortable, isn't it? It works against the natural function and design of our bodies. The failure to breathe is, let's, Captain Obvious moment for the morning, right? It's extremely dangerous if it goes too long. A, a failure to breathe is, is dangerous and ultimately deadly. It causes increased blood pressure. Reduced heart rate, loss of coordination, loss of consciousness. There's a risk of brain damage and, again, eventually death. We're going to talk today uh, not about breathing, but we're going to talk about uh, a spiritual breathing, if you will. The, the, the need that each of us have for breathing in the Spirit of God. The, the, the need to, you know, each of us receive the Spirit of God upon salvation. There's a New Testament and an Old Testament concept of this, and we all receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So I want to clarify some things as I get started. What I'm going to talk to you about this morning has nothing to do with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that comes at salvation. 
We, we each of us are, are, are given the Holy Spirit upon salvation as, as a, it's, it's known as a, a seal of our salvation. It's, it's the evidence of our salvation. But here's the thing, the, the, the level to which we accept and move within the filling of the Spirit, and we allow that Spirit to, to, to empower us and to drive us, that's kind of up to us. That does tend to ebb and flow. And as a matter of fact, as we look to the Old Testament, we were looking at the life of David. As we look at David and Saul this morning, they didn't have the same uh, soteriological uh, experience that we did. Meaning they, they didn't have experience salvation in the same way that we did. So the filling of the Spirit, the Spirit of God coming upon one, was totally different in the Old Testament than it is in the New Testament. But we still have, in the New Testament, a need to submit ourselves humbly to the guidance and the filling and direction of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to argue that as followers of God, as the people of God, that, that, our, that we need to breathe in the Holy Spirit. That a failure to breathe in the Holy Spirit, a failure to, to, to make ourselves aware of and, and humbly submit to and follow the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit is much like holding our breath. It becomes increasingly painful and uncomfortable and causes problems as we seek to live out the calling that God has for us. If you have a Bible, let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 14 through 23. 1 Samuel 16, 14 through 23. And it says this, 1 Samuel 16, 14 through 23. Actually, we're going to go back to verse 13. I'm sorry. 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And Samuel then went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. And an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendants said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants he here to search for someone who can play the lyre. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, Find me someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man. And the Lord is with him. Then, Sam, then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send your son David who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the Spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul, and he would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. Now let's deal with an obvious conflict of, of, that's going to come up in the next week, right? Because this indicates that that Saul knows David, right? That now we see David in the service of Saul, and next week we're going to have a passage where we talk about David and Goliath, and David's going to come in and Saul's going to be like, who is this kid, right? So how does that line up? I, I'm going to argue that these two, these two events are actually concurrent. The two things are actually working together. That the donkey that's loaded with, with supplies that is sent when David goes to serve in the service of Saul, is the same donkey that Saul takes with him to go to his brothers when they're preparing for war. 
That these, these stories are not in conflict with one another, that they are happening at the, the, the two events. This one's describing a period of time that's going to continue on as we move beyond this. But this is, this is like ex- explaining that whole period where David works in the presence of Saul, and, and it's a positive thing. But next week we'll go to a specific encounter. But this explains the, 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 that beginning part where David is seen in a positive manner by Saul. And, and we see a comparison and a contrast in verses 13 and 14. To be honest with you, I could have just done 13 and 14 and we could have stopped with the sermon there. But there are some things we need to look at beyond. But we'll start here at the beginning. What, what we see in these verses is this, that the power and presence of the Spirit of God is essential to accomplishing the purposes of God for our lives. The power and presence of the Spirit of God is essential to accomplishing the purposes of God for our lives. We need to be filled with the Spirit in order to live the lives to which He's called us. Again, in these two verses, we see two different characters trending in opposite directions, don't we? We, we see David first in verse 13, and it's coming to the end of the narrative where, where Samuel has come, and, and, and he's overlooked David. He's looked at all the other brothers, used the same metric that they used to pick Saul, and, and finally, they bring this redneck kid in, David, the ruddy kid, the runt of the litter, bring him in, and, and, and God tells Samuel, this is the one. Anoint him, because he, he's going to be the king. And notice what it says to end that anointing. He's anointed with the oil, and it says, From that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. We see the, the Spirit of God filling David, preparing, and, and he's been anointed for what? He's been anointed for a specific purpose, and that purpose is that he would rule Israel. That he would be the, the appointed leader to lead the people of God. He is anointed for a specific purpose, and the Spirit of God, with that anointing, has come upon him to prepare him and empower him to do the work to which he's been called. Well, then we see Saul in verse 14, and it begins in verse 14, giving us the opposite, the, the converse of that statement. And it says, now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. Now, that's, that's not to limit the Spirit of God. It wasn't that God's Spirit could only be on one person at a time, and if it was on Saul, then it couldn't be on David. We're going to see a little bit later why the Spirit of the Lord has departed Saul. And the fact is that the Spirit of the Lord has departed Saul for the purpose of being king, and, and that purpose has been transferred to David. The anointing has left Saul and has been given to David because Saul has failed to follow the Spirit and to do the job. But notice, even verse 13 tells us what's going to happen with David. That from that point on, the Spirit rested powerfully upon David. Now, interesting thought, and I've touched on this <clears throat> in the past, but, but we need to look at this. And this is why we held our breath at the beginning and why we used that comparison this morning. The word used for Spirit in this passage and through much of the Old Testament is ruah. Everyone say that word with me. Ruah. Ruah. It's, it's, a, it's a word for air. It's a, it's a word for breath. The same word for spirit is a word, the word for breath, which makes sense, right? Spirit being the, this ephemeral thing that is kind of out there and, and, and you can't see it, you can't feel it, and it's there, but it's not. And you breathe it in. It's just like air. It's oxygen. And I think that's great. The, it describes the, the texture of it, that, that it's there, but we can't see it, we can't 
feel it in the same way that we would tactilely other things, but it's there and it's necessary. It fills us, and if it doesn't fill us, what happens? We're uncomfortable at best. We die at worst. We need to breathe it in. It's the Spirit of God. It's the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 2 when God creates humanity, right? It says, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. Right then, it's just a ball of dirt, right? Humanity is just a dirt ball. And it says what? What changes that, that makes that ball of dirt suddenly become the, the, the crowning achievement of God's creation? Well, it says, the Lord breathed into his nostrils the breath, the ruah. Again, say the word, ruah. Breathed into his nostrils the ruah of life, the, the spirit, the breath of life, and the man became a living being. It, it, this is part of what separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom. Right? God, God creates a cow, and it's a cow. God creates the birds of the air, and they're the birds of the air. He creates the fish of the sea, and they're the fish of the sea. And God creates them, and they swim, and they fly, and they move, and they have life. Difference is that God creates man and the ball of dirt there. And it's the only time we see God intimately coming into his creation and breathing, breathing into them. It's what makes us in the image of God, the spiritual awareness that we have, and this intimate connection that we have. That the, we call it the divine spark an important part of our being god has placed it there and 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 we need to attend to it pay attention to it submit to it as god leads and works in and through us now throughout the old testament we see god's spirit or this concept of the the ruah coming on people in a particular way right we see god breathing his spirit into the people, into Adam and Eve, giving them life, and they live, and so we have the spark. But occasionally, we see God throughout the Old Testament breathing his spirit, and the spirit comes powerfully upon people for a particular purpose. In Exodus 31.3, we see that God's spirit, it tells us, fills the craftsman Bezalel and his, his apprentice Ohiliab, with wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Why? For a particular purpose. For the making of the tent of meeting and the ark of covenant. It tells us that God's spirit comes powerfully on them, inspiring them and filling them with the, the talents and tools necessary to do the job to which God has called them. Right? We see it again in Numbers 24, 1 through 6, that God's spirit comes powerfully upon Balaam and he blesses the people of Israel. We, we talked about that one several months ago, but that one's funny to me because Balaam comes to the mountain and he's been summoned there for the purpose of cursing the people of God. He's been hired and paid massive sums of money so that he would curse the people of God and he comes to work against the purpose of God, and God's spirit comes upon him, and he has no option but to do what God has told him, and rather than cursing the people, he blesses them. In Judges 11, we see the spirit of the Lord comes powerfully upon Jephthah, and he defeats the Amorites. We see it all over the life of Samson. In Judges 14 and 15, we see the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson, and it tells us that he tore a lion apart with his bare hands. Now, that's some power right there. That, I want to experience that one, right? I mean, I don't want the terror of, oh, there's a lion coming, right? But that would be a pretty cool experience that the lion does come. I, I'll, I'll tell you, forget a lion. We had a 
couple weeks ago, Robin and I were running through the neighborhood. We like to go on what we call ride runs, and she rides her. If you've ever seen us, she rides one of those old people recumbent bikes, and, and she rides. And everyone's like, that's the coolest bike I've ever seen. And so she rides her bike, and I run. And so we're, but she's, she's not very stable and steady, right? It's comfortable, but it's not fast. And so we're running, and we get to the corner of this road, and this, this dog comes running like a bat out of Hades to defend its house and comes all the way across the street. And I'm like, well, what do I do? And the spirit of the Lord came strongly upon me, and I squared up to punch that dog in his face. No lie. Like, Robin will tell you, I'm standing there like, ah! And the dog's like, my bad! Having that ability to tear the, like, we'd have a totally different sermon this morning if the dog had come and I'd picked it up and ripped it in half. First of all, you'd have seen it all over the news, but you'd hear that, like, tri-weekly. But we see, we see Samson, the Spirit of God, comes upon him and he tears a lion in half. We see another instance, the Spirit of God comes powerfully upon Samson and, and he, he destroys 30 Philistines. Another one where he tears free of ropes and kills a thousand men with a donkey's jawbone. Impressive. 1 Samuel 10.10. This one's interesting. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul and he prophesied. 1 Samuel 11. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Saul again and he rallied 330,000 troops to go follow him into battle. And here, we see the Spirit of God filling David and leaving Saul. Again, not a statement about salvation, but we see that this, this, rather than being about whether or not God is going to save somebody, this filling of the Spirit is for a purpose, right? It is God's Spirit coming upon us to allow us to do that which he's called us to do. To allow us to represent him in the way that he wants us to represent him in the world, in a particular time, in a particular place, in a particular way. We need that. We need to be filled with the breath of God in order to live the lives that he's called us to. And if we don't, if we fail to be filled with the spirit of God, we leave ourselves open to less than desirable options. Verse 14, notice what happens. The spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. No no sooner does God's spirit leave than a less desirable option comes upon him. Now, you're like me. You read this passage, and you're like, what could this possibly mean? How can a perfect and holy God not just allow evil in the world? It's hard enough for us to deal with that, right? The idea that that bad things happen to people. We like to say good people, but even bad people, right? We struggle to understand how bad things happen to people at all. How How do people do bad things even? But in this case, we see that it's a spirit from God. That God has sent this spirit to to some degree to Saul. He's not only authorized it, he's intended it for a purpose. Now, we need to understand something. Evil in this context is not being used as an adjective. We see it, and and we read it in our English text, and it says, an evil spirit. And so we think of it in a moral term, right? That this is a bad spirit. This is a demon. Now, 
full disclosure, we, we can look and just look, we need to look far, no farther than the life of Job to see that there are times where God, God does utilize the devil and evil spirits for his purpose. God is ultimately in control, and they cannot move without his say-so and him allowing them to at a minimum. But I'm going to argue that this is slightly different. This is not God sending a demon to Saul, but this is God sending one of a portion of his spirit or, or an angel to do this work. It's not an evil spirit. If we don't see it as an adjective, but we see it as a noun, it changes the meaning. It is rather than being a bad spirit, a morally compromised spirit, it is a spirit sent to do bad. Or sent to, a better translation or rending would be a spirit sent to bring about devastation. This is a spirit much like the, the, the spirit that is sent to, to Pharaoh. Right? We know that, that, that when God was trying to change the mind of Pharaoh and God and Pharaoh are having their back and forth that God sends his spirit and, and the spirit of death passes over Israel and it's only with the blood of the lamb covering the doorpost that the people of God are saved. What happens to the people that don't? Well, that spirit brings devastation, killing the firstborn of those who have not been covered by the blood. It's the same kind of description here. A spirit, David Tashi Sumara says that this is better understood again as a spirit that brings forth disaster. Now if we look back at the life of Saul, which we, we are not studying Saul, we're studying David, but we've got to consider this. We have to ask, did, did God simply arbitrarily decide to remove his Holy Spirit, that the spirit of divine, divine favor and replace it with a spirit of destruction? Or did something precipitate this event? See, we see this as one moment and we see, wow, how, how hateful of God to just take his spirit for somebody. How, how hateful of God just to, to leave Saul hanging. How hateful of God to give this spirit of destruction, to reject Saul. Well, let, let's back up a little bit. Turn with me back to chapter 15. In chapter 15, verses 22 through 23, it, Samuel says this. And he's talking to Saul. He says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, which is going to be ironic in a second. Divination is, is seeking the spirits and, and the other gods, the powers to guide you. And arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. Let me read that for you again. Arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. Because you, Saul, have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. We see now, just turning a page, that, that the, the removal of God's spirit from Saul is not God's arbitrary decision deciding that he is no longer going to certify Saul. But it's actually, we can look back even further and see that, that this is God giving in to Saul's own wishes. Saul has over and over and over again decided that he wasn't going to wait for God, that he wasn't going to breathe in and follow the leading of the Spirit, but that he was going to do it his own way. He's much like the child sitting at the table saying, I don't want to eat this, and holding their breath. Fine, you're only making you uncomfortable twice over. You ain't got no food, and eventually you'll pass out and you'll take a breath. That's what Saul is, and so God's like, fine, I'm going to leave you to your own, your own madness. You want this? 
this is your choice, you want to walk down this road, by all means, by all means. Now, we might look at the spirit of God and say, this evil spirit of the spirit of destruction, we might say to ourselves, well, how vindictive of God that, that Saul would reject God and that God would send the spirit to destroy him. If we look throughout the Bible, though, does God really ever send a spirit to destroy someone just to destroy them? I would argue no. Especially his people, right? Saul being his anointed, his king that he's put in place. That God's desire for Saul would obviously have been for Saul to have followed him and to have done what he had called him to do. So why is the spirit upon him? I would say that Proverbs chapter 3 gives us a possible answer. In Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, it says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Could it be that God's discipline, that this spirit of disaster or destruction that has come upon Saul is not evidence of just of God's displeasure, but of God's desire to redirect Saul? No, Saul never does it. So we, we don't know. But we can argue at a minimum that, that Saul has made the proverbial bed in which he's laying. He has chosen this. This is something that's important for us to understand. God's spirit won't far, force his way in where he's not welcome. The Lord is gracious. The Lord is merciful and patient. But he's ultimately going to leave the decision to us. And there will come a point, however this plays out, where time runs out. We ultimately have to turn back to repent. Something else for us to understand as we see this, that Saul had been anointed. The anointing of God was upon him. The spirit had been given to him. But it didn't work out for him. Saul continues to stumble over his own arrogance, his own self-worship, his own thinking that he could do it better his own way. Our anointing is only effective when we humbly submit to the spirit that accompanies it. Our anointing, God's purposes and calling on our life, his, his setting us apart for a particular purpose in life and in our world, will only come about, it's only effectual when we submit to the spirit that, he, that accompanies it. If we fail to follow God's spirit, God's going to send something to redirect and move us in a different direction. And if we fail to hear from God, we continue to breathe in this spirit of self, self-absorption and, and, and self-love, then we're going to continue to feel the pain and the discomfort, and we're going to find ourselves being more and more incapacitated by our own selfish vision and direction. We need to submit to the Lord. We need to breathe deeply of his spirit to submit and follow him where he leads us. We need to, when he powerfully comes upon us, we need to follow where he would go to seek that filling that we might accomplish his purposes. Now this is part of why we've got to go on because this next part changes the timbre because Saul realizes that something's wrong. Saul's servants realize that they realize that something has changed. And this is the question that I want for us to consider as we come into this next portion of the service. Do we want to feel better or do we want to get better? Do we want to feel better? Or do we want to get better? Soothing the symptoms 
is, is very tempting, isn't it? To find something that will quickly and efficiently soothe the, the struggle, the discomfort that we're feeling, something that will make us feel better in the moment. But it is a poor substitute for healing the sickness. Verse 15 tells us that Saul's advisors see the problem. They, they tell him flat out what's going on. No one's confused as to what's going on. They say, see, an evil spirit from the Lord is upon you. It's tormenting you. They know that the spirit is bringing about disaster. They know that it's bringing about bad things, and they know that it's from God. And note that their solution is, let's go find something to soothe it. Let's go find something to make you feel better. Now, we don't, we don't know exactly how the Spirit was tormenting Saul. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we can look throughout the rest of 1 Samuel, and we can know that, that he was increasingly paranoid. He knew that God's Spirit had left him, and eventually, very quickly, he realizes that the Spirit of the Lord is upon David, and, and he begins to worry that David is, in fact, going to supplant him as king. He's exceedingly anxious and self-conscious. He's prone to fits of violent rage. He's clearly overwhelmed and losing it. Which makes sense, because the spirit that was provided was necessary for doing the job, and it's no longer present. He's insufficient to the task to which he's been called. And he feels that his focus on himself lets him know exactly how insufficient he is. I, I, I got I kind of giggled a little bit as I, I, I read this because I feel this in myself. You know, when I focus on me and I focus on my ability to, to fix the things that are going on in our community, I focus on my ability to, to deal with the issues of what's going on in our church, when I try to focus on my ability to keep even you, the church, happy, I find myself becoming very anxious. I be, I, my wife will tell you that I become moody. I become frustrated because the fact of the matter is, without the, the indwelling spirit of God filling me up and empowering me to do the job that I am trying to do, I am insufficient to the task. You take away the pastoral calling, just living as a father, trying to, to be a father to my children, without the spirit of God filling and directing me, so often I feel insufficient to the task. Going through school, when I tried to do it on my own and I rested on my own intelligence and abilities, I felt insufficient to the task. We could go on and on and I could talk to you about your lives and I'm guessing that there are relationships and there are realities that you face that when you start to thinking, to thinking I, I got this, I can handle this, that eventually there comes a point where you're like, I don't got this. I can't do this on my own. Life, life, life be that way sometimes, doesn't it? So what do Saul's advisors do? His wise men. Understand, these aren't, just, these aren't just basic servants that are meant to bring him dinner. These are his wise men, his attendants. The, the text indicates that these, these are the ranking officials in the kingdom. These are the best of the best. And their solution is go find you a good liar player. Yeah, you feeling a little bad? Go find you someone to play you some music. Find someone to entertain you. Find someone to, to, to take your mind off it for a while. Is this not our world? Hey, look, you, you have an issue? Well, let's, let's find something to take your mind off. Let's, let's find something to, to soothe it. Let's find something to, to gloss it over and let you forget about it for a minute. 
They're fine following the advice of playwright William Congreve. He, we, we misquote this and we say, music has charms to soothe the this, this savage beast. It's actually music doth have the charms to soothe a savage breast. That when our, when our lives become overwhelming and the tension overtakes us, that music can calm us. I was thinking about this this week. You know, this, this desire to soothe rather than to solve. And I had a conversation with uh, a pastor friend of mine not too long ago, just within the last week or so. And he was telling me uh, someone in his church had called him and asked if they would go with them to visit a friend of theirs in the hospital. And this friend was, was dealing with severe issues and side effects from diabetes. To, to the point where he had been in and out of the hospital over and over again with severe leg infections. And the man's sitting in the hospital and, and the pastor goes in and visits with him. And they're talking to him and, and in walks the doctor while they're visiting pastor friend says, well, I, I, I can get up and leave. I don't need to be here for this. And as is often the case, the man says, no, it's not a big deal. I don't have anything to hide. And the doctor says, hey, look, so we've, we've gone over your test results. We're looking at everything, and there's good news. We can fix this. There was, there was thought that they might have to take the leg, and they're like, we don't think we have to take your leg. As a matter of fact, if we change some things, we change, we change some things with your diet, we change some things with exercise, and, and we do this regimen of physical, physical therapy, we think we can not only get you back to where you were before you came in, but we can get you even better than you were. We can fix this. You can get back to life the way that you want to live it. We can fix this if you'll change these three things. And the man, the man looked at the doctor and said, well, I don't know about that. My daughter makes the best pasta. The best pasta. And, you know, we eat it pretty often. It's my favorite food, and I just don't know if I can do this. Do you have a pill or something that you could give me? The doctor's like, yes, I can do that, but it's going to come back, and we're eventually going to have to take the leg. And the man with a straight face said, well, I'm going to have to pray about it and think about my options. Think about this. The doctor says, we can fix this completely if you change a couple things. And the man says, I think I would rather lose my leg and keep doing what I'm doing to soothe the symptoms than to take the solution and deal with the difficulty of making the change in my life. And we, we, we think that and we're like, oh, unbelievable. Ladies and gentlemen, we do this all the time in tons of ways. This is American culture. Whether it's physically or spiritually, we are all about, give me the quick fix. What can I have to make me feel better in this moment? The interesting thing, if we were, and it's not interesting, the sad thing is so often we even make church that. We make this, this few minutes that we come into church on Sunday morning, or the hour, two hours when we have Sunday school, three hours when we have Wednesday night. That's our moment where we come in, we get us some Jesus, and we can feel better about the world for a minute. We soothe our weary souls. We just, we, we don't really want to fix anything. We, we, we don't want the pastor to jump on our toes and tell us that we've actually got to do something different. We don't want to be directed to the things that we're, we need to fix in our lives and the ways that we can fix the world. And the Bible tells us that, that, that God can solve all these problems, that God is bigger than the, the issues we have in the world, and that you and I, as his agents, as his hands and feet, can be the solution. And we're like, well, God, that's great and all, but can you just make me feel better about my life? God's like, I want so much more for you. 
But soothing the symptoms does nothing to fix the problem. Actually, it often just masks the issue enough to allow us to make it worse. Well, let's consider again the solution they send. Oh, they, they, let's get David. He plays the liar. In, in ancient times, the liar was believed to have powers of divination. Remember, we just said that, that God's saying, hey, uh, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in obeying the Lord? Nope. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination. Saul is rebelling already, and in his rebellion, God sends a spirit to correct him. I'm going to argue that. And Saul says, hey, let's soothe this. How can we soothe this? Divination. Send me someone that plays the lyre, that has this power, this stringed instrument that they can calm and soothe the spirit. Rather than going, why, why is the thought not Hey, you know what? I had the Spirit of God. And it came upon me when Samuel anointed me with oil for this pur purpose. Someone go get Samuel. Someone go get Samuel and ask Samuel what I need to do. Samuel's already told him, you need to obey the Lord, Saul. You need to do what God has told you to do in the first place. You need to submit to the Spirit of God. Allow him to fill you and humbly follow him where he leads. Saul says, no. Let's just soothe it. Again, often an issue in our own lives. We, we want something to soothe the discomfort, to soothe the anxiety and frustration, and the pain that our failure in sin causes without actually going the full distance and making the necessary changes to fix the issue. Is soothing the symptoms of our sin and our separation from the Holy Spirit of God simply prolongs our suffering and does nothing to enable us to once again live the full and true life that God has for us. So what do we need to do? What should Saul have done in this moment? He needed to seek the source and make the change. He needed to take a deep breath of the Ruah, the Spirit of God, and follow where the Spirit led. Repent. And get right. Notice that the, the, the servant recommends David for the job, noting several characteristics of David. He's a brave man. He's a warrior. He speaks well and he's good living, looking. But the most important comes at the end. The Lord is with him. That's humorous to me. Saul realizes he loses the Spirit of God, and rather seeking the Spirit of God, he finds someone in whom the Spirit of the Lord is and says, bring him close. Another soothing option. And note, David doesn't do anything special when he comes into Saul's service. He's simply humbly using his gifts to serve as God makes opportunities available. Now, if we look back, Samuel never tells David why he's anointing him. Samuel, at this point, is the only one that explicitly, the text tells us, knows that he's anointing David as king. So he anoints David. All David knows is that he is anointed for God's purposes. He gets anointed, and what happens? The text tells us that Saul sends for David, his, the son of Jesse that's out in the field. He's anointed for God's purpose, and the father sends him back to the field, and David's like, Okay, you want me in the field? I'll serve God as best as I can, standing with the stinky sheep. 
Saul calls for him and says, hey, come, come, come to the court of the king. The king needs you to come play your, your get fiddle thing. So you come and play your lie, liar in the, in the service of the king. And he says, okay. And he comes and he just humbly plays his instrument. He, he's a jester. He's a court jester. David comes anointed for God's purposes. And for him, he's like playing music at this time is what God has called me to do. Now, an interesting thought. What kind of music is David playing? First, Second Samuel 23, 1, David is, is addressed as the sweetest psalmist in all of Israel. He wrote a great many of the good psalms, that, the, the psalms in, that we know of today in the Bible. And he created and organized the temple musicians. We can safely assume the music David was playing then was music worshiping the Lord. interesting and ironic then that in the absence of the spirit of the lord saul once again finds comfort in the man whom the lord is filling and that man when he comes into the service of the man whom the spirit of the lord has left draws the man's attention back to the lord to the very spirit that he's lost was it then the music that soothed him or proximity to the one full of the spirit of god Saul may not have learned from watching David, and we know he never repents. He continues down his self-centered path, doing his own thing in his own way, and he and his whole family suffer for it. But we know that David did learn from Saul. In Psalm chapter 51, verse 1 through 17, it says this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth and sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Notice that David, when he sins with Bathsheba, an epic failure. It's not just him going and doing his own thing. It's him violating God's law in clear and apparent ways. He, he is responsible for the murder of a man. Adultery with that man's wife. And David realizing, and when he's confronted by the prophet Nathan with his sin, rather than brushing it off, or looking to soothe the symptoms of his sin, he says, God, I have failed you. Please do not take your spirit from me. Sustain me. Give me a spirit to sustain me. Restore me. 
Renew me through the power and presence of your spirit. You know, if we want, we can soothe the symptoms of breathing in the noxious spirit of self in this world. We can soothe those symptoms. We can do our own thing. We can find something that will make us feel better for a moment. But it doesn't fix the problem. We want to see a solution come about in our own lives and in the world. We need to be filled with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We need to humble ourselves and, and, and be obedient to where he is guiding and leading us. We need to see the truth of his word as it is presented to us. And we need to seek to repent and follow where he would lead. And this is the good news this morning. There is no good news for Saul. It ends poorly. But there is good news because we're going to continue following the life of David. And the good news is this. If we humble ourselves and repent, he will restore to us the joy of our salvation. He will fill us with the fresh air of his Holy Spirit in order that we might fulfill his plans and purposes for us and live in right relationship to him. As we conclude this sermon this morning, we're going to do so in a spirit of prayer. I'm going to invite you to keep seated, and we're going to sing this hymn with Nathan. I don't know where you are in your life or what you may be dealing with. Perhaps you have been following God's spirit, and you've been humbly submitting yourself by all means. But perhaps like me, there are times where you need reminded, and you need to call on the Lord and say, Lord, please fill me. Lord, let your spirit fall fresh on me. Renew me that I might follow you in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. So I invite you to sing this as a, a prayer this morning along with Pastor Nathan. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Melt, remold me, Show.